You're listening to the Valley College Connection Podcast, where John Kawai and Scott Wigan, two Valley professors, engage in a conversation about success with educators and students. Each week, they'll sit down with a different guest to find out ways each of us have had to plan, persevere, and overcome to be where we are now. The show will also highlight resources and services that are working to make a difference at Los Angeles Valley College. John and Scott believe that all of us, and the college itself, are a work in progress. And in this podcast, they'll explore on a more personal level how the community can work together to support each other as we move forward with our goals. We are so happy today that we are joined by Dr. Yannette Martin, the Associate Dean of Student Equity here at Los Angeles Valley College. Thank you for being here today, Yannette. Thank you for having me, John and Scott. Our, our, truly our pleasure. Uh, we wanted to start off with in, just to, to set the context and, and get a little bit more information about your, your backstory, um, what your, your pathway was, what your journey experience was that really brought you here to, to Valley College. And so you can take it as, as far back as you'd like to, um, but sort of walk us through your, your, your high school, college experience, you know, anything that you care to share. Thank you. So um, it is a huge honor to be here and to be interviewed, uh, and, and hopefully that our students will be able to get a chance to hear this podcast and several of the other podcasts, so thank you for thinking of me. Um, I think that because I've come for full circle, I'm going to need to start at the very beginning of, of my uh, upbringing. I was born and raised in Koreatown. Uh, my parents immigrated to this country like many, many immigrants seeking for opportunities that they didn't have in their rural town of Mexico. They were farmers um, and uh, came from very large families and uh, immigrated to the United States because they did not have access to formal schooling. In fact, my, pa- my parents have less than a third grade education. And so when we got here, um, or when my parents got here and later I, I arrived, um, it was really important that all of my six siblings and I went to school, uh, were successful in school, earned whatever degrees we wanted. So we had education at the forefront of everything we ever did, um, despite the fact that our parents didn't have access to schooling. So they knew that education was important and they valued it and they encouraged us to just go to school and learn and be hungry for any kind of knowledge. And so for me, uh, going through the educational system, I was a part of the LAUSD school system. I spent my first five years of school at the local elementary school, learned to love diverse people in Koreatown. It's very diverse. Um, Learned to love reading. And I share this because later in life it became really important. Uh, my love of reading has, has formed a lot of what I do uh, in, in, in life. And um, so fast forward, I was a part of the LAUSD integration project, um, which happened in the 80s and 90s, in which students from urban communities were bussed out to suburban areas, uh, Palisades, Woodland Hills, um, different areas in the valley, and I was bused to Hale Middle School and then El Camino Real High School. And where, where are those at? Those are in Woodland Hills. Oh, okay. So okay. I was a student who was on a bus for two hours a day for seven years of my life Wow. in order to access schooling that was um, adequate because the schools in my neighborhood were 
uh, under-resourced, um, class sizes amounted over the 30, 40, 50 number. I used to hear stories of my neighbors who would sit in uh, milk crates sometimes, who would share books, who had pages missing from their books, and I fortunately didn't have that. So from an early age, I knew that one, education was important, and two, that not all schools were designed the same or not all schools were providing the same types of supports and services to students. So how were you accepted once you were uh, bus to Woodland Hills? So I, I think I fit in fairly well. I was the fifth born in my family, and so all my older siblings had already gone through the process, and they did a lot of coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, they shared the Valley accent a lot. That was the big thing <laughs> that, that was shared. They're like, everybody says like all the time. And, oh, my God. And I thought, okay, well, that's fine. I'm, I'm watching 90210, so it just seems like the show, for those of you who are not familiar with Beverly Hills 90210. Right. So, you know, it just seemed like, okay, people are different, and I'm surrounded by different people here. So it it's not that shocking. I feel that I fit right in um, thinking back, uh, but I know that I wasn't given access to certain courses either because I was bussed in or because I was placed on a different academic track. I was, like I said, I always loved reading and writing, but I was in just general education courses. Uh, some of the academic uh, AP and honors classes off- were offered either before school or after school, so sometimes mm-hmm. scheduling was an issue because okay. I took a one-hour bus to get to the school. Right. So right. a lot of those things set the tone for my uh, middle school and high school experience. And then when I graduated high school, I was a good student. I loved learning, but I didn't see myself as college material at all. I thought um, people like me who are poor, who are working class, who are not in AP and honors classes, don't go to college. You either have to have money or you have to be really smart. And I had neither of those two things. So I, um, but I also was raised to believe that education was a very important thing. So I thought, okay, well, yeah. Can I, can I ask you about yeah. that for, for just a second? So you said that you were the fifth born in, in a family of six siblings. Um, where do you think your parents idea that education was so important came from being that they didn't have an education beyond third grade was it because of that 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 they felt education was so important because I know in some of the other stories that we've heard that sometimes it plays out the opposite way Mm -hmm. where the parents might might be more or or less inclined to encourage their kids to go to school if they didn't go to school what do you think set your parents apart did your siblings pursue higher education as well or my so my dad um i grew up in a traditional mexican household in which the male was a breadwinner and the female stayed home and that that same narrative uh shaped my parents experience so in my mother's household so my dad had access to third grade education which was kind of a huge investment in their family only the males were had access to schooling uh same thing happened with my mom's family so my mom is one of 12 women in her family and there are four males so it's one of 16. Wow. Yeah. Big family. (laughs) Huge family. Um, And so only the men got to go to school and so I I think back to my feminist thinking and ideology and I know that it comes from my mom because she uh, experienced America in a very awful way because she did not speak the language. She did not have any schooling and she 
felt uh, very marginalized. And growing up, she said, I want you to know how to advocate for yourself. Mm. And I know that education is the way that you'll be able to do that. Right, right. So, and being that my mom was a stay-at-home mom and she really had to figure out how to navigate educational systems and had to advocate for us um, before we could for ourselves, she, she really was instrumental in that. And she, on, on Saturdays, every Saturday, we would go to the public library because it was, I now think about it as free daycare. I mean, she was <laughs> home with seven kids every day. So I think it was that, but it, it really worked out because we all developed a, an affinity for learning. Different things, we're all very different. Um, I have a brother who's a math teacher and has been doing that for over 15 years and he loves it. Uh, I have a brother who um, is a mechanic. He's been doing that his entire life since he was in high school. Um, my sister's working on a PhD in microbiology. She's the scientist. She's in Iowa doing that. Uh, one of my brothers has spent his entire life working um, at health food stores, and he's very much into health and um, you know providing good food for for a healthy living and another brother who does construction and he's been building casinos in Vegas for you know the last 20 years. So we're all very different. We've all honed in on our craft and invested on it. And, um, and so, yes, some of us have gone through formal schooling. Right. I, I came to community college. That's where it all started. Uh, I like to tell people that I'm a beauty school dropout because when <laughs> I started college, and I didn't think I was smart enough, and I didn't think I had the money to go to college, but I did know that I loved Gwen Stefani, and I really wanted to you know, have an opportunity to do her makeup. <laughs> this was in the 90s, late 90s, so I said, if I could be Gwen Stefani's makeup artist, I would be the happiest person on earth. That would be the best career for me. Right. So I went to trade tech. Okay. I tried enrolling in their cosmetology program okay. and uh, because I wanted to be Gwen Stefani's makeup artist. So if Gwen Stefani ever hears this, I'm still interested <laughs> in doing her eyeliner, you know. But so that's what it started. And had it not been for a counselor who to this day has been a mentor for me, had it not been for him, I don't think I'd be where I am today. Mm. Um, I was... Uh, this person knew the Latino experience. And I say that because he came from an immigrant background and he sat me down that first day when I said, I wanna be a cosmetologist, I, here's, I have a whole plan. You know, like much, many 18 year olds, I had a plan. And this was at Trade Tech? This was at Trade Tech. Okay. And so I, I get there, I talk to this guy and I'm like, how do I do this? I don't know how, I don't know anything about college, but I know you guys have a cosmetology program and I want to do her makeup, so I need that degree, so how do I do this? And he, you know, he, he was like, whoa, okay, well, let's, let's get to know you a little bit. And I'm like, this is so weird. Just help me get to Gwen Stefani. And, um, you know, he, he sat me down, got to know me, got to know a little bit about my history, knew a lot of the, the busing of students' experience, uh, knew right. that context and he said you know you could what else would you like to do in your life if it weren't Gwen Stefani's makeup artist he's like because you know working in Hollywood like I don't know and 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 doing makeup you know that's fun but you can always have that as a hobby that doesn't have to be your career and I thought I don't I can't even imagine what else I would do I haven't had a minute to think about that right 
Um, but he said, what are your other hobbies? I'm like, I love reading. Uh, I love to read. Put a book in front of me, I will read it. And I love that it just trans transfers you into any other place in the world. So um, he said, you know, you don't have to change your goal right now, but I want you to take a class at your local school, which is City College, okay. LA City College. And so he said, just take a class, test it, no commitment, go test it, make sure it has a lot of reading, and and then come back and we'll chat. And, mm -hmm. and if you still wanna do the cosmetology thing and go find Gwen Stefani and do her makeup, we will get you there. But first I want you to give yourself this opportunity. And I thought, no one's ever done this. No one's ever sat me down, asked me what I wanna do, asked me about my family, none of that. So. Sure enough, I said, okay, well, I don't know this guy, but he seems to know what he's doing. So I showed up to LA City College. I took the assessment test. I placed in English 28. So I was in okay. developmental education. Okay. And for the first time in my life, again, I grew up in Koreatown, went to school in Woodland Hills, a predominantly upper middle class, a white neighborhood. The first time in my life, I read a Latino author in English 28. Wow. And my life was transformed. I read black authors, I read Asian authors, I read about kids in communities like mine with gangs and working class families and having to deal with issues about paying bills and not just Romeo and Juliet and this romance, you know? Right. And so I saw myself in the curriculum and I thought, well, if this is college, then I think I can do this right. and I want to do this. This is exciting to me. So that totally switched my trajectory and from there that counselor um, connected me with a program a summer program called uh, the summer intensive transfer experience which we now are at Valley we're partners with the UCLA Center for Community College Partnerships they're the founders of that program and I went through that program and I learned that people like me who are low-income first-generation women of color can go to places like UCLA and can be successful there and there's people who believe in people like me. Right, right. And that blew me away. And so from there, it was like the floodgates were open. Like there was no barrier. I could dream as big as I wanted. And I had people who believed in me and who would support me. And if they didn't know how to get there, they had plenty of friends who they would call and say, hey, can you talk to Yannette? Mm -hmm. And she has questions about this thing. So from there, I went to UCLA, I transferred to UCLA. Okay. I was a communications major. And still thought I wanted to work in Hollywood and you know do something with that, but um, I soon became very involved with education initiatives. I started doing outreach. I started working for this summer program, and I started talking to other community college students and saying, "Hey, you too can transfer. You too can, you know, come to a place like UCLA." And my love for education just started there. So I. And I started doing more research and I started learning about some of the policies that made it a little bit hard for some students to see themselves at places like UCLA or to see themselves as academic. Right, right. And um, when I graduated high school, I realized, well, I don't want to work in, I mean, sorry, when I graduated college, I realized I don't want to work in Hollywood anymore. I want to work in education, but I'm not really sure where in that whole spectrum of education. Um, what, what was your major? It, it, so you transferred from, from City College to UCLA. What, it, what, what did you transfer as? I was a communication studies major. Okay. And then once I started kind of divorcing myself from the notion of working in Hollywood, I, I picked up the education minor. And uh, I started learning okay. about 
some structured inequalities that are designed in a lot of our educational institutions. Why I was in a bus for an hour every day for or two hours every day to get to a school that had proper supplies and educational infrastructure for me to learn and my peers in Koreatown didn't. Right. I started learning about that and I thought, wow, that sucks. You know, that shouldn't that's not right. That shouldn't be in place in this great country. And so I didn't know how to address it, but I thought I need to advocate to change this. And so I went on and I worked for an elected official. My first job after college was working for, back then it was Congresswoman Hilda Solis. She's now one of our uh, county supervisors. And um, she, another great role model, a woman who was the first in so many different things in her career. And she said, you know, you can you can change things. She believed that as people we can advocate for inequities and roll up our sleeves and do something about it. So uh, from there she encouraged me to continue education. She mm-hmm. said that you know if you want to make change you're going to need uh, degrees that say you have knowledge to implement those changes. And so I said okay what what do I do next? She encouraged me to apply to Ivy League schools because okay. one of the things I learned from her is if you're going to do anything, make sure you're the best at it. Okay. And so, uh, or at least try to be the best right. at it. Right. And so she encouraged me to apply to all kinds of schools, but definitely said, if I'm going to write you a lot of recommendation, you have to apply to Ivy Leagues. Okay. And so there you go. So I said, all right, well, I really want to go to UCLA again because I love that place. Right. But... I will apply to Ivy Leagues. And I mean, here I am, a recent UCLA grad. I didn't really know what an Ivy League was yeah. or where they were or what that meant. Right. And right. so she said, apply to Harvard. Okay. And of course, I looked into it and there was an application, filled it out, sent it in. Had no idea that I was about to embark on one of the craziest things <laughs> of my life for me and my whole family. Yeah. So let me ask this. Yeah. Do you find that your non traditional background? made you more attracted to Harvard? Because I think mm. part of the problem that we have over here is that I keep talking to students who keep telling me that I'm off track, I'm a little late, I don't look like everyone else. And I keep telling them, apply to a private school because that's that's what they're looking for. Yeah. What they have is a bunch of cookie cutter kids that all went to band camp, right? And their classes are boring. And that if you have uh, seen a portion of the world that these kids have only read about, you all of a sudden become a valuable asset to the school. Do you find any part of your history was in particular Harvard was attracted to or? I think so. Mm-hmm. And I later sat in admissions committees at UCLA, so I know so. Mm. Um, I think, and having been in a class, so I went, I, I applied to Harvard, got in to the School of Education and I focused on education policy because I realized, okay, policy is how you're able to change things. Wait, uh, I have to pause right there. So yeah. what was that like? I mean, even to get the acceptance letter I mean, oh. for, for you and your family there? Because you're, you're, you're telling a story to us here that you, you graduate high school without any idea really about college or wanting to do college with a, a certain you know, set of aspirations. And then 
you know, kind of piece by piece, you're introduced to other individuals who keep believing in you and encouraging you and sort of, of, of helping you to see, hey, there's all sorts of possibilities for what you could do. And the, it seems like the picture gets bigger and broader and in terms of what you're capable of doing to the point where you have a degree from UCLA. Someone's telling you, hey, keep going, apply to Harvard. And now you get accepted to Harvard. Like, What, what did that ex experience feel like? That was, I think, the biggest shock of my life. It was the most exciting, but the biggest shock of my life. And I, I still remember exactly what happened. The day before I had, again, I applied to other schools. The day before I, I, I got my first denial from Berkeley, um, from ed, their ed policy program, and I thought, they lied to me. Mm. I, I'm not supposed to go to grad school. Grad school is so hard. Right. Um, I maybe UCLA made a mistake when I got in, but now I have a degree, so they can't take it back. <laughs> and I was at a very low point that day. Um, and I remember working late and just said, "I guess I'm going to be the best staff member for Hale de Solis because I don't think I'm getting into Harvard or any other place. If Berkeley rejected me, there's no way an Ivy League's going to accept me." Yeah. Um, and I applied to Penn and um, Michigan and UCLA and USC, I applied to several places. And so that day I was working late because I thought I'm going to be the best staffer I am. Put in the extra hours. Yeah, I will, because this is my future. I'm not going to grad school. And I remember taking a pause um, and checking my Gmail. And I saw, I was getting all these like random newsletter updates from different schools. So I saw a Harvard thing an email from Harvard and I thought, okay, maybe they're, you know, announcing something like look at this article or something. So yeah. I, I clicked on it, not thinking this is admissions related because I was expecting an envelope. Yeah, right. And so I open it and the first thing I read, like my eyes just go straight to the congratulations. The, I mean, there's text and stuff, right? They say, thank you for applying and all, all those stuff. But I just, my eyes went straight to congratulations and I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. And I go back and I start reading every word, and I don't remember what the words are, but I remember going back and thinking, like, congratulations for what? Like, <laughs> I suck, I'm not going anywhere. Like, I don't know what you're congratulating me about. But finally, I read through it, and I just remember feeling like, I can't even say that it was an out-of-body experience. It was really, I, I started crying, and I got up, and apparently I, I lost all my color because when I walked over, the only other person in the office was my district director, and I walked over to her and I said, I think I just got into Harvard. And she's on the phone with one of her children and she says, honey, I have to let you go. <laughs> so she hangs up her phone, she comes to me and she's like, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean you just got into Harvard? And I'm like, it's on my email, I don't know. And so we had this moment and we cried together and, I couldn't, I, I like couldn't contain any emotion, happiness or anything. I didn't know what it meant. Yeah. So I go home. So finally, I, I she's like, "Go, get out of here. Stop working late. You're not going to be the best staffer ever." <laughs> so she she kicks me out, and I go home and I tell my parents. But my parents again, they don't really understand what Harvard is. Right. What Harvard means. Harvard, what it means. Right. You know, Harvard. Yeah. And so, funny enough, I was waiting on all my other schools to come in, and I, Harvard's expensive. I'm not gonna say it wasn't. Um, but uh, as I was waiting on all the other schools to, to say yes or no, um, 
it was still there, but it was not like, oh yeah, that's where I'm gonna go. Okay. It was more of like, okay, that's cool. I got into Harvard, but um, I, I really wanna go to UCLA or I really wanna go to a school close ho- close to home. So once I got all my admissions letter and I was it was close to June 1st or whenever you have, May 1st, whenever you have to make the decision, I was home with my parents watching Univision, which is, <laughs> for those of you who don't know, a lot of Mexicans and Latinos watch Univision. This is prime television for us. And um, former President Vicente Fox is on the news. And you know they always have kind of like a title down at the bottom and some kind of script describing the person. And at that point it said, you know, Vicente Fox, Harvard School of Kennedy School of Government alumni. And I'm like, oh shoot, (laughs) dad, did you know? And my dad's a big political junkie and that's how he and I connect. And I said, this guy went to Harvard. And it didn't register to my parents until I said, remember the school I got into that we're still, like, not sure I'm going to? Right. That guy went to Harvard. That's pretty cool. And I just said it as, like, a statement, like, oh, an observation. And my dad looked at me and said, wait a minute. You got into a school that Mexican presidents go to. You're going to Harvard. I don't know how we're going to do this, but that's where you're going. And I remember that moment because I think part of it for me was I'm waiting to see if I can go somewhere close to home is one of seven children. None of us have ever left L.A. to go to school. Okay, right. I was the first. And so for me, it was also some fear of what am I going to do 3,000 miles away and how am I going to survive and I'm going to get homesick and maybe Harvard made an error or it's going to be really hard and um, all those things were true but I now knew that I had my parents support and that they now understood what Harvard meant and that it was a big deal and you know now I understand fully what it what it meant it's the first institution of higher learning founded on this entire country so that's pretty cool so I went to Harvard I had an amazing experience. And going back to your question, John, about do you think some of you know your unique uh, experiences and, and uh, upbringing had something to do with it? And I would say, yeah, because my my classmates were so diverse from all over the world. So exponentially much more diverse than my my neighborhood and and my community but it was amazing everybody had so many amazing experiences not everyone was born and bred to go to harvard although a lot of my classmates were they Mm. they're they were legacy admits you know their parents and their grandparents and their aunts and everybody went to harvard and i was like whoa i am the only one and so me and my la friends created a little clique and we hung out together and studied together and took classes together and we just really formed a a huge bond and that is one of my uh, strongest peer groups that I have to this day you know we just celebrated 11 years of friendship 12 years of friendship almost and um, they're my family they're my extended family Um, so so yeah so I went off to Harvard came back because Boston cold is very cold It's not for me. Um, I love sunshine. And I also came back because I knew the work that I needed to do was here. I knew that there were more people like me who felt lost, who didn't believe that people like us belong in places like college. 
And that was the thing that was still driving me. So I came back, I connected with my UCLA people, and I started working there again. Okay, can I pause you for just a second? Mm -hmm. How long were you at Harvard for? What was the program? It was a one-year program. It was okay. a one-year expedited uh, master's program okay. focusing on education policy and management. Okay. And I learned about, I learned more about the inequities okay. in um, educational structures and how they have recycled themselves um, over centuries. And so I thought, well, again, I know that there are inequities in schools that I've lived and I've seen, and I want to do something about it. Right. Now, when, when you're at Harvard, you've mentioned a couple times in, in telling your story here that there were it seems like sort of seeds of doubt as to whether or not UCLA made a mistake or Harvard made a mistake. Um, was there a point at Harvard when you're taking the classes there as a Harvard student that you f you felt like you know it's not a mistake? Like I this is this is what I'm I'm supposed to be doing. I'm obviously more than capable of doing this. Did you have a, a moment like that at some point where you you had that kind of belief? I had both. I had moments of oh my gosh, they're gonna that they're gonna find out that. I'm not a legacy admit that I don't my family didn't come to Harvard and once I found I mentioned my LA group all my LA friends we were all the transplants who's who were first-generation college goers there was a group of about 15 of us uh, several of us went to community college transferred to any institution in California and then had the same narrative. We had mentors who encouraged us, who believed in us, and who said, you can go to all these places, go, apply. Mm -hmm. And so when I got there, that was my support group, and those were the people I would turn to when people questioned um, kind of the narrative that I would bring in. Because I would bring in a lens. Um, so I would hear, I'll give an example of, of one of the things that has had a lasting impact. Um, one of my classes was around uh, education policy specifically. It was a policy class looking at the structures of education and the different programs out there and how they help or don't help students. And uh, one of the issues that was brought up in this class was around, um, you know, students whose families don't value education because they didn't go through it. Right and they were talking about Latinos not valuing education and clearly we don't value it because we don't send our kids to public to private school and we don't um, you know support our students when they have to go to the library you know late after hours or and some of that is true I know that some of my peers had issues with their parents saying like hey I'm gonna be at the library till 10 o'clock tonight but what I felt was missing was that maybe these communities just don't know how to navigate these spaces. Right. And there's a disconnect there. And and I kept sharing the example of, well, my parents didn't go to school. They don't know what I'm doing. They can't tell me about an advising session or a student ed plan or financial aid, but they want me to be here. So can we agree that the value of education is there, but maybe they just don't know how to guide me in getting from point A and the importance of all these different players in being successful. And so I remember faculty challenging me and you know, faculty at Harvard are very well known people who have high levels of scholarship, who are advisors in their department of education and 
you know, I remember hearing that and thinking, wow, maybe I have it all wrong. Hmm. Maybe I maybe I'm not supposed to be here. Maybe I'm advocating for an experience that only I know and no one else can relate to that. And, you know, of course, my peers who were often silenced by the professor came to me and said, of course, yes, this is me. This is my experience. This right. the same thing. My parents don't speak English or my parents immigrated here. or They were refugees in this country. And, you know, they said, go to school, but I don't know how to help you. And, you know, my parents are holding down two and three jobs to help me be at Harvard now. And they don't know what I'm doing, but I have to do well and show them that you know, with A's, because that's a good benchmark or reflection of you're doing right, that's how I can show them that I'm that I'm doing what in fact they want me to do. And so I, I understood that there was a huge disconnect in cultural uh, capital and what is valued and what is exchangeable. And then where are the gaps in which there might be a value for something, but we just don't understand how to make that happen. Right, right. Wow. Well, I, I think part of that experience shows um, how important it is for people from um, populations that usually aren't represented in academia to actually um, push themselves to be there. Mm -hmm. Because that conversation isn't had if you're not there. Right. And I think the problem that we have is that, you know, I'm, I, I always try to push my, my students to like, let's think about what's the dare to be great school mm -hmm. and let's shoot for that because they they usually tell me that but I, I don't belong there I'm like you don't belong there but you need to be there this voice and this experience this wisdom is something that informs the school and the schools know it right because you don't really know what your blind spots are until somebody comes there and says you're wrong because I lived that experience and to have the courage that you're you're explaining, you know, to be able to push back against a narrative like that, you know, with with Harvard at faculty saying one thing and you're saying, no, I don't think so. That's not my experience. I mean, that that takes a lot of courage for for a student to be able to do in, in any capacity. And and as as you were starting to to explain before I interrupted you, and I'm sorry that that seemed like that was sort of the the next sort of steps along what you wanted to pursue as you finished Harvard and, and came back to to Los Angeles. Right. And, and I would love to say that I did that a lot, <laughs> but I learned very early that you don't challenge those professors very much and get a good grade. Right, so gotta play the game, right? You have to play the game. So right. I, I learned that and I thought, whoa, okay, well maybe I just need to advocate in a different way. Right. And what it forced me to do was find the scholars who painted a different narrative. Yeah. And that's um, what I, it meant I had to work that much harder. It meant I was at the library till 2 a.m. instead of 10 p.m. like some of my peers. And I just, I felt like I always had to work harder. I was on a bus for two hours for seven years of my life just to get a basic high school diploma. Whereas other kids might have just walked to that school Whereas from their house. Whereas kids, all my friends, would roll out of bed at 6.50 and run down the hill and show up just in the nick of time. And that's, that's just a, uh, I'm not saying it, I mean, I'm a little jealous that they got to sleep in a little bit, but you know, that was just it. I just had to work harder. So it was not that much different from my experience for all those years. So I just put in extra work and I 
found those scholars and I learned about critical race theory and critical um, literature and uh, you know all these different policies that have been restrictive housing covenants and you know race quotas and legacy admissions and all these different things that advantage some people and inherently and institutionally disadvantage some people and generally the people disadvantaged are people who come from low-income backgrounds are people of color um, and and are people who don't have a seat at the table so going back to your your statement John part of my driving force to get a PhD and be the first in my family to have a PhD was that specifically to be able to have a seat at the table and so when I got into UCLA's PhD program come hell or high water, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna finish and I'm gonna write about students of color and about their experience and I'm gonna use critical race theory and I'm gonna make sure that the students are the driving voice of my dissertation and that's what I was able to do in that in that space. I um, My dissertation focused on the experience of community college students and how through a summer program they were able to go from believing in the deficit model of people like you don't go to places like UCLA and then through the course of a year and different programming getting to a point where they believe in themselves and then being able to advocate for themselves and for their peers and so it's been four years since I published my dissertation and I still keep in touch with the students in my dissertation and some of them are now graduating from UCLA going on to law school going and so you see the impact, the ripple effect that happens from that. And so if enough of us get to places um, where we are making policy decisions and teaching classes and, um, you know, trying uh, legal cases and, you know, identifying groundbreaking medicine, then, then we will change the way um, the world looks at people like me. So once you finished UCLA, what was your first job? My first job out of UCLA um, with the PhD, uh, I started by using my n new uh, gained skills as a researcher. Um, so I started doing a lot of volunteer work with the um, community college district with LA LACCD uh, through one of my mentors. He put me on a number of different projects. At that point, there were a lot of new initiatives coming down from the state, so that was 2014. Uh, the state had recently passed policies around student equity, around student success and support programs, our new matriculation policy, around the workforce investment. And so any work group that, he, that had a need to help translate policy and research evaluation he would put me on that project. Yeah. And so I spent a good six months working on different projects and getting the lay of the land of, you know, what are the different policies impacting community colleges today? And so from there, I was able to get my first job at Mission College after meeting uh, the college president there and sharing with him some of the, the projects that I had worked on. So I was hired to work uh, with the Dean of Student Support Services there and help develop an implementation plan for 3SP and how to capture and evaluate that. And uh, fast forward uh, eight months, I was uh, I applied to this position as a student equity coordinator and got that position as well. 
So I want to emphasize a point that you make, which I think is great. So you had a PhD, you went to Harvard, and your first job, you volunteered. Yes. Yeah, and I think that's a conversation I try to have with my students that if you want to dare to be great, if you want to define what it is you want to be, at some point, you're going to have to do some free work, right? Because a lot of times people just can't see you in that role, and that role may not exist. You may have to be great at something at a job that doesn't exist, and you show people that this job matters. And um, I found that my advantage also that, you know, all the way through my career, I was always willing to work for free if it led to something, if I could showcase that something I really cared about, right? Mm-hmm. Some, I could be in something I really cared about. And I think, I think that's a really great example of what you that I, that's true at every level. Yes. Right? Yes. So once you came over here, what's your responsibility here? So before I get to that one, because okay. I, I love the, the example of volunteering, and um, I have to share, because I, I, I hope that students hear this, and uh, being from a working-class community in which volunteership happens, service happens. I mean, I grew up Catholic, and there's a lot of service in the religious side of our lives, and there's a lot of volunteerism and fundraising and all of that that happens, but sometimes we don't draw the connection to our professional life. And so for me, trying to explain that to my parents, yeah, I'm gonna go be somewhere for 10 hours, give them free labor and not get paid, was an interesting conversation. Especially after all this education. Especially and so at this after, point, you are now Dr. Martine. Yeah. I'm gonna go volunteer. Yeah, I'm gonna go volunteer. Um, because I stand behind this work and I know it matters and I bring something to the table that this work group needs. So, um, so having that conversation is really important and being able to do some of that translation, that cultural translation. Um, I was able to explain to my parents that I was working on really important projects and that because I would show my peers that I was capable and had knowledge and experience and abilities that could benefit in this work, that they would, someone would hire me. And of course that happened. And it has happened even before this example in other times, um, but it was hard for them to see that and to understand it. And so I, d- I still don't have an answer for how to have that conversation, but it was really about just trusting the process and, and having the conversation and not dismissing my parents' kind of I just I just don't tell my parents. Yeah. They just don't know. <laughs> they just don't know. <laughs> they just see me working. They think I get paid for everything. <laughs> and my wife has just come to the to accept that. Yeah. That uh, if I want to do interesting things. Yeah. Right, the first my first uh, the first few uh, bits it's going to be free. And but I've had enough experience where she sees that every time I do something free, I showcase I'm able to do something. That at some point someone starts to give me more money. Yeah. So. It, it, my career has always uh, been accelerated because I do that. So what do you do over here? So what do I do at Valley? So now I said I started as the uh, coordinator overseeing our student equity plan, and that was in 2015, um, end of 2015. And since then, I've uh, now been promoted to associate dean, uh, went through the hiring process, submitted all of my years of experience and training for that and uh, applied, went through the whole shared governance committee, uh, got a final interview with our college president, and was selected to continue to oversee the student equity efforts. And as they told me, you know, you've already been doing this work. So what does the student equity efforts entail? 
the the state, like I mentioned, in 2012 passed um, several policies that were focused on uh, helping community colleges, first of all, see the inequities, and second of all, offer some funding to try to rectify and change those inequities, change the way we do business at the college. So I have the privilege of working with folks across the campus in student service, in academic affairs, in um, administrative services directly with students, indirectly with students, with professional development. Um, I oversee 14 different initiatives across the campus, each initiative trying to institutionally change the way we do business if there's an equity gap there. So, so what are some of your um, big successes then on campus? I think the students are finally finding a place where they see themselves being advocated for. And, and I say that having just come from selecting five students to go on a historically black college tour. And the last few days I've spent interviewing them and asking them, why do you want to go on a historically black college tour? What kind of information do you think you need to be able to um, excel in your career and all of the students that I interviewed said you know I just want to be around faculty and students who are who believe in me who are ambitious like me who look like me and even though we might have different perspectives and opinions which they will and and they recognize that they're like this is the south it's very different from California uh, but to be around highly successful people who see me as a possible high success um, and who also look like me yeah. and who understand some of those cultural norms. They're like, I've never had that. And several of them have made the same connection with, I had my first black professor when I was in college. I went 12, 13 years of school without ever seeing myself in the curriculum. I'm hungry for that. I want to see myself in the curriculum. And so pretty much all of them have said that. And so I just finished um, selecting the five students and giving them their congratulations letter earlier this morning. And they're so excited to not only do that, but come back and mentor other students who were lost. Because all of these students that have interviewed, the first year or two said they were lost. Yeah. I tried this, I tried that, I tried different majors. I um, I just didn't believe in myself, you know? And and some of them are first-generation college goers and some of them are not, but they just expressed that the fact that they couldn't see themselves in the curriculum and that they didn't have someone actively telling them, I believe in you, let's do this together, mm -hmm. that it was hard for them. And so now they have this opportunity to go be in a space where everybody is invested in them, believes in them, and knows that it might be challenging at times, but that they're a worthy investment. And so they've found this voice. So I would say that's probably my, mm -hmm. what I see as a big success, uh, because students are finally finding a place uh, where they can see themselves um, supported and reflected. And so that goes to, uh, you know, one of the other things I get to do in my role is I oversee the Mosaic Center the Mosaic Center houses our Dream Resource Center, our black scholars, and our veterans. And so these different groups have very specific needs with uh, folks who understand uh, their experience and who can relate to them culturally or 
can relate to their experience as a college student who has a different trajectory or who might have some financial challenges or who ha might have um, post-traumatic stress because of uh, being a, a military uh, veteran. And so there's targeted decisions that go into the programming in these spaces so that we're not doing the same for every student in these spaces. We're doing what we believe and including the student voice as much as we can in providing them services, connecting them with resources on campus and off campus. And where's the Mosaic Center located? The Mosaic Center is located in the second floor of the Student Services Building. Mm -hmm. So right next to EOPS, right before you get to the bathrooms. And then who should come and knock on the door? Anyone who feels that they want to be connected to someone that can see them. I think it's really interesting because um, when I think about sort of your arc over here and I think about, you know, what things I really appreciate, what programs that you've done, it's really interesting that you pick these things that are real personal, right? Yeah. That connection that you have with students. Because uh, for me, I think of different programs you worked with. Um, I think the um, tutoring for disabled students has been really successful, yeah. remarkably successful. Um, when I looked at the data for that, the tutoring you provided um, for the learning disabled students uh, made them pass their courses at the same rate as uh, mainline students without disabilities with tutoring. Right. Right. That was really, a, I thought, a big boost to this college. And I think the other thing is that you were also the person who helped fund uh, STAT 100, mm -hmm. which allowed a lot of students to skip taking all those algebra courses that they didn't need and take a pre-STAT class and go directly to STATs. But I, I think it makes sense that, you know, it's the personal stuff that we really care about as teachers, right? And ultimately, that it, it impacts the student. None of us have a job without the students. Yeah. You know, if we're not transforming lives, none of us exist here. But to your point, John, I think that ultimately my job is to steward these state dollars to implement new ways of doing business to to work on closing the achievement gap, and Stat One Hundred and the student, uh, students with disabilities targeted math tutoring are two great examples of how we've partnered with the people doing the work, we've heard the need, and we've funded the initiative, and now we're seeing the results. And I think that's, that, that data is still preliminary, but it's very telling thus far. The other thing that I like to say that I'm very proud of is, you know, when I first got here, I. I presented to the equity committee and I said, we need a first year experience coordinator. We need someone at the beginning when our students come to us and I know they're gonna be lost because it's the first time they've ever done college for most of them, especially our, our recent high school grads. And we need to teach them what it's like to be a college student. It's our job. They should not know how to be a college student if they've never done it before. I think that any one of us who's done something for the first time in our lives it's going to be hard at the beginning. It might be overwhelming, and we might need some guidance. And so it's our job to teach these new students how to do that. And now that we have this first-year experience coordinator, we've worked together. We've developed our guiding our, your path to success, our extended orientation. We see the preliminary data, and it is outstanding. I pinch myself when I see it because to think that two and a half years ago I presented this idea now it's been implemented now we're going on our second summer we're planning for our second summer to bring in students 
to put them through an extended orientation to teach them that first of all they belong here that people like them belong here and can be successful a and b that there is a code of conduct that there are things you're supposed to do as a college student and you were never taught how to do this before because k-12 you are given directives on how to be a student from day one which classes you're taking where those classes are what you're going to amount to how long it's going to take you period as college students you have a lot of agency in deciding and if you don't have an understanding of what you're what you're selecting or where you're going and you don't have a roadmap how are you going to get there and so i think that's a great opportunity for us to guide the students uh, from day one and to also let them know that if at any point they get lost again there's people with names that look like them that are friendly and welcoming and that are going to pick up the phone and try to find the answer if we don't have it ourselves. And that's what we've seen is, I believe, transforming the culture of the students coming to us. Well, I know we're running out of time, but let me ask my the question I always want to know. If you were going to talk to yourself back when you were walking to trade, school, uh, trade tech, looking to be a makeup artist, what advice would you give yourself? Um, I would probably tell myself to um, trust my gut and to ask for help because I knew back then that um, my intuition was telling me different things. I knew that I had a passion for learning, but I also was lost and I didn't know how to ask for help. And so those would probably be the two pieces of advice that I would give anybody going into anything new that's scary, that is trailblazing, you know? Trust your gut, your gut's gonna tell you a lot, good and bad, mm -hmm. and ask for help. I have to say that in listening to your story, you know, it, you know I'm, I'm inspired sitting here, and, and I, I wanna thank you for, for taking the time to come in and share with us. Um, a, another word that comes to mind that, that I feel like sort of encapsulates a lot of what you shared is this idea about the power of belief and the belief that other people had in you. Um, and the belief that you, you, you came to have in yourself. And I think there's some of that same belief that you carry with you here at Valley College in terms of what, what we're able to do, what the vision looks like for, for what's possible for, for our campus. And, um, and again, I find that belief and, and that, that optimism incredibly inspiring. Um, and, and just want to say thank you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for being at Valley College. Thank you, John. Yeah, thank you. Thank you both. And I always look forward to working with both of you who I know that if I need a second in the room, <laughs> I can count on you two to make sure that that, that that gets done. So thank you for the work that you're doing and for being partners in, in this effort. The Valley College Connection Podcast is dedicated to sharing the dynamics of our community and supporting the fascinating lives of students, faculty, and those in pursuit of college life information. The Valley College Connection Podcast is produced by KVCM and supported by the LABC Academic Resource Center. The content heard on this podcast does not reflect the faculty, staff, and students of Los Angeles Valley College.